Hello, my name is Blaze Bailey. Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attack. Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owens. This is Bobby Bliss from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Dan Lorenzo from Hades, nonfiction, The Curse, and my horrible solo music. You listen to my boy Victor on Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Ron Bumble for Fall of Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Windor from Monster Magnet, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Kiske talking, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Stilter, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, everybody, what's happening? This is John Bush, and you're cranking it up on Mars Attack. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Don Jameson from That Metal Show on VH1 Classic, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Crank it. Hey, everybody, this is your big daddy-o, Gene Hoagland, who has played with your favorite metal band, and you are listening to Mars Attacks Radio. This is Kurt Winstein from Crowbar, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. This is Alan Cantillo from Autumn Hour, Hades, Nonfiction, Watchtower, Lions, Mirrors, and other assorted bands, and you're listening to Mars Attacks Radio. Hey, Motherhead and Headbangers, this is Doro Cash, and you're listening to Victor here on Mars Attacks Radio. I wish you a great time, rock on, and keep metal alive. I'm a son on a piece, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Now!
Welcome one and all to episode 45 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I'm your host Victor and we kick things off there with a little King Cobra. This episode features a very special interview with none other than Carmine, a piece legendary drummer, played with so many different bands, uh, played in Vanilla Fudge, played in Cactus, King Cobra, played with Ozzy, Rod Stewart, etc., etc. He discusses all of that during this interview, at least he hits on uh, a bunch of those different acts along the way, and uh, he discusses a bunch of Interesting points, different things regarding uh, uh, things that Ozzy's mentioned in the press over the years, which he thinks is is a flat-out lie. There are other things uh, regarding a book that'll be coming out, uh, people that um, have surprised him when they've uh, come up to him and mentioned him as an influence, so on and so forth. I don't want to spoil uh, the interview for, for you guys, but there's plenty of interesting things that do come up uh, during the interview. Uh, the one thing that really struck me with that first track that we sampled there, uh, We Got a Fever off of the new King Cobra album. Uh, I'm saying new, it did come out a while back, and you know, as I have been doing with a lot of these podcasts, just apologizing to the artists uh, due to the fact that I've taken so long to put these out, but if you haven't been following... The podcast, you'll know that, uh, or if you have been following the podcast, you'll know that I had a uh, my first child a little while back and sort of had my hand tied, my hands tied for a bit there. And uh, we're trying to get back up to speed, so I do apologize for the lapse in time from this episode, from the original interview to when this episode actually has come out. So, uh, anyway, getting back to what I was trying to say. The new King Cobra album, Uh, a lot of interesting things that we're going to touch on during the interview regarding the album. That track, We Got a Fever, that shuffle-type groove that Carmine has going on during the song reminds me of this track. Give 
title track off of the first Blue Murder album. Such a great, great album. Album that probably nowadays doesn't get the recognition that it should. John Sykes, Tony Franklin, and of course Carmine Apice on that album. Uh, our good friend John Astronomy, or John Ostrowski, uh, always talks about when Carmine went up to Berkeley and wrote out the actual notes for him. On how, or actually wrote the notes that he plays at the beginning of that track, so that John would know exactly how to play it. Just such a cool, cool opening, and just such a cool groove on that track. Uh, Eddie Trunk always talks about, uh, oh, this is the year that Blue Murder is going to get back together again. And it's funny because I've heard Carmine say in various interviews that, you know, yeah, he'd like to do it, but it just has never made sense up until now to do it. So we'll see if if that ever takes place or not. You know, a lot of times um, projects or bands catch lightning in a bottle once, and it's almost a shame that they revisit things because it tarnishes your memory of such a great classic album. You know, it isn't to say that these three amazing artists wouldn't get back together again and put out a great album, but it would be a shame that, you know, something came together and it was so subpar that, you know, it would almost go out and be like a guilty by association type deal where people really wouldn't, you know, were fans of that album wouldn't take it. I don't know. I don't know how other, how, what other way to, to put that any better, but you get what I'm talking about. Um, other things, you know. Carmine is known by a lot of people for appearing in the Bark at the Moon video, although he doesn't actually play on the track. Uh, I have heard him mention in the past that he helped with the mixing and producing of that album. And um, I know others have disputed whether he actually played on the album or not. But, uh, you know, I have been able to meet Carmine in the past, met him years ago at a KISS convention have some autographed sticks of his from way back then. And, uh, you know, outside of putting these shows together, uh, you know, I'm a fan first and foremost. And anything that I can do to help spread the word of bands or artists that I've loved, you know, growing up, listening to, or that have influenced me as a drummer, uh, you know, I'm more than happy to do so. So it was a great pleasure to have, you know, Carmine on the show. And it was um, almost like a running joke uh, with my brother for years, you know, with me being the, the music geek that I am and doing these shows. He'd always say, well, you're nothing until you get Carmine a piece on the show. So after uh, interviewing Carmine, the first thing that I did was uh, reach out to my brother and say, hey, I just interviewed uh, Carmine a piece, you know. So it was, uh, it, it was, it made for some interesting banter between my brother and I for uh, for a little while there. But uh, anyway, yeah. So let's talk about all the usual stuff before hopping into the interview portion of this episode. Remember to go to Mark Striegel Radio. That is S T R I G L radio.com that is where you can listen to brand new episodes of mars attacks radio it airs exclusively on stream a of mark striegel radio uh new episodes usually debut thursdays 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific regardless you can go to mars attacks radio.com and check out when the shows air and repeat uh also 
check out the Mars Attacks podcast. This podcast that you're listening to right now. You can find out who's uh, going to be on the show. Actually, I should say that you can find out who's going to be on the show via Twitter. I always post who I've just finished interviewing. Uh, so there's a link to the Twitter right on Mars Attacks Radio. Uh, you can also go to Mars Attacks Radio to stream or download the actual podcast episodes. Or you can go over to iTunes. We have a link which within each post uh, for the podcasts that take you to the uh, iTunes portion. You can subscribe directly from iTunes as well. want to send a shout-out to Patty from Poland uh, who sent uh, some information along regarding the podcast on iTunes, and I thank him, offered him some merch, and he uh, turned it down. Uh, but I do appreciate him uh, letting us know that there was an issue. We rectified that as soon as possible, and... Uh, anyone who missed out initially on the classic albums column or the last classic albums column based on Queens of the Stone Age, you can go there now and download the episode. And speaking of the classic albums column, we'll have a new uh, episode per se based on that. The last week of this month, we'll have plenty of great new guests. Uh, we'll have Glenn Drover from Megadeth, Dave Reffitt, uh, we'll have Charlie Benante once again, Mark Striegel, Gene Hoagland, uh, Alan Tecchio, and a slew of other artists that are going to, or that I should say that, um, that have sent their comments in, and you can read them right on the website. So check that out. That'll be up there shortly. Um, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag just yet, but the album is from a very classic hard rock act. Maybe not one of their moan, most known excuse me, albums, but definitely an album that, um, that you should check out. You know, a lot of people um, talk about specific albums by this act, and I don't think that that diminishes the great musicianship or the importance of the album that will be featured. So uh, you'll be able to check that out the last week of this month, uh, I would think that it'll be around uh, sometime around the 28th or 29th of September. But yeah. And uh, if you're also interested, we have the other two podcasts, Fusion Sonica, which is the Spanish language podcast. Uh, You can go to FusionSonica.com to find out more about that. Uh, We have a video of the week up on there. Uh, We also have great writers from various bands, various Spanish bands that lend their comments to the site as well. Uh, We also have the Fusion Sonica radio show, which airs every uh, Friday night on Mark Striegel Radio, 12 a.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Pacific, three hours of great kick-ass music. I always say, uh, you know, I speak in Spanish, but the music is all kick-ass regardless of whether you understand Spanish or not. Uh, We also have the... Incoherent Ramblings of Victor M. Ruiz, which is me. Uh, you can go to Victor M. Ruiz, that is R-U-I-Z dot com, to find out about those podcasts. We usually mix up different styles of music outside, excuse me, outside of hard rock or metal. We also talk a bunch about TV, movie, movies, excuse me, wrestling, video games, so on and so forth. Other things that don't really fit into 
this format. So uh, you can also subscribe to those two podcasts within iTunes. Anyway, enough of me rambling. Uh, Let's get back into another track by Carmine Apiece and King Cobra. The name of this track is Turn Up the Good Times.
why was now the right time to put King Cobra back together? It wasn't really a planned thing, to tell you the truth. You know, it, it, I went to a studio to visit this guy, Pat Legan, and mixed, uh, he mixed all my guitars and stuff. And I had gone there with Dave, the guitar player from King Cobra, who, you know, who was actually a computer programmer. And he comes into L.A. every once in a while. So he called me up and said, hey, you want to go out to, to have some dinner? I'm coming to town. I said, I was in town. I said, sure. So we went out to dinner. And then uh, then I also knew that Pat was mixing uh, a Keel record. And Dave used to be in Keel before he was in King Cobra for a minute. So... I said, hey, uh, Pat's mixing Keel. You want to go down and say hello? He said, yeah. So we, we go down there, and a couple of the Keel guys were there. So Dave said hello. We said hello. And then Pat Regan said, hey, why don't you guys do a King Cobra record? You know, if the Frontiers just signed Keel, there might be a deal for King Cobra. I said, yeah, that's a good idea. That's really how it happened. You know, it wasn't a, a plan like, oh, now is the time. We better do it now. You know what I mean? It was, right, it was actually right, right. No, no plan at all. It just sort of happened, and then uh, I was working with this manager, Adam Parsons, with my Slam show. Um, I have a show called Slam, which is like a blue man group kind of thing. Right. You know, and stomp. And uh, I said, hey, look, you know, you think you pull off a deal for King Cobra? So he went looking for a deal and ended up with Frontiers anyway. And uh, and then we said, all right, cool, we got a deal. Let's see who we're going to, you know, before we, while he was getting the deal, I called up... Uh, all the guys in the band asked them if they wanted to do it, and I've been in touch with everybody. And I had, I had talked to the singer, Mark Marcy Free, months before that, because I had a catalog deal, which included a DVD of King Cobra in Mexico. And, you know, but it was a catalog deal. It was like 13, 14 pieces of, uh, you know, uh, material, you know, 14 different pieces of uh, CDs and DVDs and all that. And... Uh, yeah, so it really wasn't a lot of money involved. Actually, that CD DVD was worth about three hundred seventy-five bucks, you know, <laughs> as part of the whole deal. And you break it all down, you know. And uh, you know, so it was like um, I talked to Mark Free, and she didn't want to play with King Cobra. She didn't want to go out on the road. Said, I don't want to be in a freak show because you know he was with us as a man, you know. <laughs> right. and we played a lot of shows and did a lot of videos. You know, and then he didn't want me to release the video either, you know. So I, I said, okay, fine. So I didn't release the DVD, and, uh, and and so I didn't even bother calling him when we got the record deal because I said, you know, he left the band in the first place because it was too heavy for him, you know. And, wow. uh, <laughs> you know, and now, as you see, he has a group called Unruly Child. I don't know if you heard that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's, just, it's what I call fucking wind music, man, Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I mean, all keyboards and real wimpy and total, all melodic, and, you know, it's just wimp. I mean, you listen to our record, you fucking kick ass, you know. Rock. Everything yeah. I've done in my career, I kick ass. I, you know, even when I was at Rod, we didn't play wimp music. We rocked, you know. And as right. far as, you know, I, I don't play that kind of music. I never really wanted to. So that's why he left in the first place. So, you know, so, so that that's still there. So... When that happened, uh, we were talking to uh, Pat, and Pat was saying that Paul Chotino was involved in this Keel record by doing the, uh, getting involved in the vocals. He produced the vocals for Ron Keel. I said, wow, yeah, that's a good idea. Paul's a great singer. I had worked with him on a couple of things. So I told right. Dave, why don't we get Paul? 
So he said, yeah, call him up. So I called Paul and he said, I'd love, I would love to work with you. So we did and and that's a good thing because he would he's much better for, for King Cobra and Mark Free would have been Mark Free, you know? Right. He's got a husky, really soulful husky voice, a great singer, and not only that, he's a great writer, lyricist, and a great engineer of Pro Tools, you know, which right. we needed to do this record because everybody lived in different places. So mm-hmm. we did this whole record by the internet. Huh. That, that, that's very interesting, though. I, I mean, obviously, on the one side, you guys definitely upgraded <laughs> with getting yeah. Paul involved. But at the I same think, time, you know, it's, it's so boneheaded, you know, that with Mark or Marcy or however you want to look at it, I mean, obviously, everyone knows him from King Cobra, you know, even yeah. if he wants to do that other junk. Um, yeah. You know, you'd think you'd say, all right, let me put that aside for a second and let me go yeah. with what got me to the dance, you know, and it would oh, yeah, sort of cross-promote you know, one another. Yeah, because people talk about this unruly child. I said, excuse me, I never heard of this band. I never heard of the other band he was in either. You know, yeah. I mean, the only thing that made Mark Free famous was King Cobra. Yeah. Serious. And bar none. There's other things he did were just... Silly, these solo albums as Marcy Free, they, they sold nothing. You know what I'm yeah. saying? I mean, King Cobra, we sold to you know, all all told, we did a quarter of a million albums in Europe, you know? Yeah. The first mm-hmm. and second album. You know, all, all told, we sold 250,000 albums in, in America. You know, I mean, we did sell about half a million albums worldwide with the two albums, you know? Yeah. We were on television, we were on MTV. I mean, you know, there's other... What's the other one? Unruly Child, there was another one he was in that uh, was... Uh, you hear about it, but, you know, I mean, I, I remember reading the name, and I go, who knows that album? Nobody knows them. <laughs> and, right. and it's Unruly Child. I said, you know, like somebody said, yeah, Unruly Child's doing a, uh, a gig, you know, in, in England. I said, oh, that's good. Who else is on it? And they said, you know, Warren's with some guy that used to sing with Dave in, in this thing, thing called Big Cock. And I said, right. uh, so Warren, and you got Unruly Child. I said, is there anybody big on there? You know? <laughs> There's all these, all these bands, you know, Unruly Child you never heard of. You know, and this yeah. one you never heard of, and that one you never heard of. I, I said, you should have King Cobra on there. We should have a worldwide name. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I've, absolutely. I mean, I, I had the opportunity to interview him, and the person that asked me to, to do so, I said, you know, once I get past the sex change question, what else am I going to ask him? You know, he hasn't been doing yeah, exactly. anything for <laughs> you yeah, know, he's a mortgage so many broker. years. He's a, he's huh. a mortgage broker, you know. I mean, with King Cobra, you know, at least we, everyone went on. Johnny went on to Wasp and, uh, you know, Mick, Mick, you know, went on to uh, Bullet Boys, you know. I mean, at least right. I can honestly say, you know, I picked, I picked guys that went on to do big, bigger and better things. You know, that went right. for me to, to go on to the, you know, make their career stuff, you know, and they right. went on and did stuff. But, you know, Marcy Free went on to, you know, be, Marcy Free went to become a woman and then he, you know, had no career and, and went back to Flint, Michigan and, uh, you know, and, and became a mortgage broker and then, you know, threatened to sue me if I released that DVD. I mean, give me a break here, dude. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, uh, that, that, so that makes I'm like, no uh, sense. I don't need it, you know. But Paul Shortino is a beautiful man. His his wife and him are the nicest people I've ever met. I mean, I go to Vegas to work on the album. I stay with them. You know, 
have my own like bedroom with a bathroom with, with the tra- uh, treadmill in there, you know, and they, they treat me so great that they're just beautiful people, you know. And, uh, you know, Paul goes way, way beyond the call of duty to make this record, way beyond the call of duty, you know. And then we ended up sending it over to Germany, this guy Michael Voss, to mix, you know. Mm-hmm. And that became like a family thing, too, because last summer I was on tour with, with my, uh, Michael Schenker. So Michael Schenker, singer Gary, um, his album was being produced and done by Michael Voss. Paul Schottino's solo album was done by Michael Voss and produced it and released and everything. And at the time, he was mixing Michael Schenker's live DVD album that they did in Japan a couple of months before, uh, a DVD you know, album and, and, and DVD product. And so Michael was mixing it, and Paul was singing background, you know, overdone some background vocals on it. You know, so it was like, I said, wow, this is wild. So we gave... <laughs> We gave Michael this song that's not even on the record called Monsters and Heroes. I don't know if you heard about that song. Right, right. Yeah, which is a song dedicated and written about Ron and James Dio, which is an sure. awesome song. Yeah, so we gave mm-hmm. him that song to mix as a test. And he sent it back, and I was on tour still with Schenker. We were doing our last gig in Chicago with the Scorpions. And... Whammo, I said, wow, this mix is unbelievable. This guy is tremendous. So we said, you right. got it, dude. So he's mixing the whole album. So he mixed it in Germany and sent it to us by internet. It's unbelievable, you know. I mean, it's really a good story here, you know. Yeah. It's not like, uh, it's not like you know, uh, you know, like the Marcy Free story. You know, he's sitting in a mortgage company. Funk is asking him to do that. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, lot of tie-ins to, with Schenken and Michael Voss, to Paul Shortino, to going on the road with Michael, being, you know, hearing it with the Scorpions, who was, you know, Michael's old band, who now yeah. Michael Voss is playing with the drummer of the Scorpions with Michael in a project. You know, it's like a whole crisscross <laughs> thing that, you know, involves everybody, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and it's a good story. It's a good rock story, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Um, did you set to do anything specific with this album, or was it just... You know, an organic process where everyone well, brought their piece well, to the puzzle. Well, well, it was kind of both, okay? Uh, number one, okay. Frontiers wanted an 80s sounding record because I did a King Cobra record in 2001 with me and this guy, Kelly Keeling, who did my guitars and stuff. And uh, right. I brought in, like, Mick Swayde to play. I brought in C.C. DeVille. had this great guitar player um, named Steve Fister play on it. And it was under the name King Cobra, but I made it sound real modern, you know? Okay. Like like the King Cobra, like the Katazu stuff, it was modern sounding. So they specifically said they didn't want that sound, that they wanted uh, the King Cobra sound of the 80s. So we said, okay, fine. So once we got the deal, me, Paul, and Dave got together in Vegas. Vegas was sort of middle ground from Phoenix to L.A. And uh, I was doing a gig there also in Vegas. So Dave came out for the weekend, and we sat around Paul's house, and we all brought cassettes. Now, some of the cassettes we brought, Dave brought and I brought, were songs from the 1984 that we'd written with King Cobra that we didn't, never used. Like a song like um, On Top of the World, Midnight Woman. Right. Those were songs we actually wrote in 1984. You know, so we figured, well, he wanted songs from the 80s. We have songs that we never used <laughs> that were modernized that right. were finished. 
And so there were like three songs like that. Screaming for More was another one, except it was a, it was a slow song. It was like a one quarter of the tempo. And then we decided to, to lift it up to that fast uh, tempo. That's one of my fortes, you know, that, that fast tempo. And uh, like we had a song called Attention on the first album that was similar that tempo, you know. So, and then we just started coming up with ideas, you know, there. And Dave said, okay, I'm going to send you ideas. So I made another appointment to go back to Vegas. And Dave would send us a whole bunch of song ideas with a, with a drum machine. And then once me and Paul got him, we would take it on the Pro Tools and sometimes like the Monsters and Heroes song, we had to actually edit the chord structure the way we wanted it so we could sing to it, you know. And right. then we would do that, and then we then we do some melodies and lyrics and hooks and all that, and then we send it back to Dave and say, this is how we vision it. And then he'd send back a proper... Um, guitar track with a with a click and a drum machine and so we did that for all the songs and when we finally got all the songs together then i went into the studio in vegas and recorded analog on tape okay huh. that's why the okay. drum sound is really pretty cool on there so we recorded analog and i i recorded so we had a guitar vocal and drums right i put all the drums against the guitar and the vocal with paul Paul be sitting in the control room saying, hey, man, this song needs a little more energy here. You know, I said, okay. And I would, you know, we'd put it together. And then we send it back to Dave. And he would put some real big guitars on it. And then at that point, Johnny Rod moved to Vegas. So he came in. We put the bass on analog also. Right? And one day he did all the bass tracks. It was amazing. He did a tremendous job. And then, then we finalized the vocals. I went to, back to Vegas. I worked with Paul on the vocals and the background vocals, finalized the lyrics. And sometimes we actually wrote a song right through the Internet where I had the drum track down, like the song called Fever was written on the Internet. You know, I had a sample drum track for four, uh, four minutes of, of this groove and chorus and everything. And, and over the phone, me and Paul talked about what we wanted to do. He would send me a melody. I go, no, no, why don't we try this? And... You know, and I send them stuff back, and <laughs> we talk on the phone. And we actually wrote that song on the phone and on the internet. It's unbelievable. You know, it just so blows me away because when you listen to the album, it sounds like we're all in the same room. You know, and then after we got up, yeah, then we got up parts and we sent it to Mick, and Mick put his parts on it. You know. It's unbelievable. The album sounds like you guys were all in the studio together. The the your part sounds so alive, you know, and it's interesting that they were recorded in, in analog before, you know, being brought over and and mixed together. It you know, the, the album sounds the total opposite of what you're describing to me. I know, I <laughs> you know. know. But so you know, I've been doing this kind of recording now since nineteen eighty three. No, eighty uh, probably right after the first King Cobra album. Uh, but actually, the first album I did like this was 1983 with uh, Vanilla Fudge, <coughs> where I did the drums like this. And then, like, the Blue Murder albums were done like this. All my guitars albums were done drums first. And playing to the tracks and, you know, like Travis the Peace stuff, all done to the clicks. And then we'd add, you know, the stuff. But this one was a little further on because, you know, uh, we didn't rehearse any of the stuff, you know, usually like with Blue Murder and all these other bands with Travis Apiece and Guitars. So I rehearsed for three days, then we went in and played the track in the studio all together. And then I would fix up all the drum parts to my liking. And this one was starting with the drums and 
you know, because I'm a singer kind of dude, and I, I know where to put fills where, you know, where they're not going to interfere with the vocal. As long as I have the vocal on there, you know, I'm okay. So, right. you know, when I was, you know, when I heard the songs coming together, like I remember I was on the tour bus with Shanker, when uh, Paul sent me um, MP3s of all the songs with the bass on it, and just rough mixes he did at home, I was just blown away. I said, man. First of all, Johnny Rod played his ass off, you know, and I haven't really heard him play in, you know, 20 years, 25 years, you know, and he was right. tremendous. He was really a great bass player, you know, and he, he nailed the stuff with me like it was perfect, you know. So <laughs> I was really blown away, and then Mick put his parts on it, and then to hear the fullness of the band. And, you know, it's got the King Cobra trademark as far as the, the sound between my drums and, and Dave's guitars. You know, Dave Wright, he, he has certain chord structures, a certain way he plays, which was all over the first album, you know, the one that everyone likes, right. and on, on the second album, too. And even on King Cobra 3, when me and him did the album, that trademarks King Cobra sound with the drums and the guitars are there, and it's back with this album, you know? Right. Uh, it's, it's very cool, though. Uh, again, it is a, a very... It, it is... 80s sounding, but at the same time, it does sound fresh. It does sound like as if it could come out today at the same time. The way it's produced, yeah. the way everything is put together. So, yeah. I mean, we're—I I was blown away. I said this should have been our second album. <laughs> <laughs> well, does this make um, or does this album represent a stepping stone to? If you're saying it sounds more like your second album, does this does the following release? sound like the third album? I mean, is it more of a progression than what you actually did back in the 80s? Well, I mean, you know, the second album, we, 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 had, we I don't know what, what we were thinking, but, you know, Capitol Records basically told us if we don't do a bunch of singles, they, we can't do a second album. So it was like <laughs> we, we had to do what they said, so that's why the second album was a little wimpier. Actually, Mark Free right. liked the second album a little more. But then when we <laughs> were rehearsing to the next album, we said, you know, we're going to go back to our hard feel, and that's when he left. Yeah. So, um, so this would have been this, a great second album, but you know, but with today's music business the way it is, you know, everyone says, what is your goals for this? I mean, we would love to play some live shows, and we would love to do another album, you know. But I don't, you know, I don't really have a clue what's going to happen with this album because the music business is so weird. I mean, you could sell five thousand right. records. It could sell 50,000, which is a lot of records for today, you know? Right. So um, I'm good for whatever it does. If we can do another album, that would be awesome. If we can go out, I know the managers are trying to work on some shows. I mean, the problem with King Cobra is our name was bigger in the press than it was in actual record sales, if you know what I'm saying. Okay. Uh, record right. sales didn't have a chance to catch up with the press. So... Hmm. We, you know, our biggest drawing crowd was, you know, like in L.A., 900 people a night for two nights, you know? Hmm. So, right. you know, we can't go out. To, in order to go out and, you know, do something, you got to make enough money to at least make the flights and pay the roadies and stuff, you know? Right. And the, the offers that we're getting are ridiculous. I mean, I make more money for a drum clinic myself, you know? So, <laughs> right. so it's very difficult to get out on the road to do anything. You know, I, uh, we already told everyone if we do anything, if we can get out, 
it's going to be like minimal money being made. It's just going out just to show people that King Cobra is alive and well, and that's about it. Right. You know. So, but it's a it's a really good fun musical album. This one and you know the old stuff we would play also would be mostly probably from the first album. <laughs> you know, maybe something from the second album. I don't know which one. You know, but um, you know, so we'll see where it goes. You know. Good thing is we're getting great reviews. Good thing we're getting great reviews. So. No, that that's great, and the album does definitely deserve all the positive reviews that it is getting. I definitely recommend it to anyone that was ever into King Cobra or into that '80s metal. Right. I actually was able to speak to uh, Greg Prado not too long ago about oh, right. uh, no some. Kidding books that he had written and he uh-huh. sort of dropped the bomb on me telling me that he was helping you out with uh your biography yeah um yeah, i needed a writer and i you know i saw some of the stuff he did i read a lot of reviews online that he did and uh and all the reviews on all the stuff he did was good and he's you know italian kids from long island you know so uh, i thought he'd be a good guy to hook up with you know because uh yeah. i knew it was going to be a, a major a major project to to do this because you know I got a lot of stories and I got a lot of stuff to talk about and you know my English is uh, I'm from Brooklyn you know <laughs> <laughs> and so as a writer you know I'm not I'm not the, the best speller or you know actual writer so um, we've been working on it now since July and we're getting close we're getting close now but there's still. You know, I want to try and make this book really great. You know, like anything I do, I try and make it the best I can make it, you know. So. Right. You know, like when we, he and, thought and we I, were done, he thought we were done. And I said, you know, it might be a good idea to get some other perspective of other people who are in the book. You know, like Bob Daisley and Jim McCarty from Cactus. And, and maybe get some people that I know, like Max Weinberg and Eric Singer and, and Glenn Hughes and Eddie Trunk and, uh, you know, Peter Chris, and Pay, all these guys, you know, if all the people yeah. in the business that my, my drumming and my band had affected, you know, and so I had him do a whole other series of interviews with all these people. And now we just, he just inserted them in the book. And now I'm reading through the book, making notes on everything about, you know, like, like I thought, like Peter Chris's uh, insert should be in another place, you know. Right. And, and it's crazy. And I was just up at VH1 Classic Radio uh, with Eddie Webb, you know, the VH1 Classic Nights, Classic Rock Nights, I think right. it's called. And, uh, and, then, and then they told me, hey, look, you know, this VH1 Classic books might be a great place for you. And I have a manager working on my book deal. He's going to New York next week. She, he's got some meetings. He's going to try and finalize a book deal there. So, uh yeah, but I really believe, you know, my, my story starts back in, you know, in the 60s, and, you know, it, it tells everything, you know, even how I got out of the draft, and growing up in Brooklyn with, with gangs and fighting, and friends of mine being in mafia, you know, becoming mafia capitals, and, and you know, now in jail for murder, and, you know, it really could have been me, but music saved me, you know? You know what I'm saying? Right. So, you know, it starts off there and goes to all the Vanilla Fudd, meeting Jimi Hendrix before it was Jimi Hendrix when he was Jimmy James, hanging out with him in New York, you know, playing clubs with him when he was nobody, I was nobody, you know. And then getting in Vanilla Fudge, making it with Vanilla Fudge, and 
you know, playing with the Who, blowing them off the stage in England, becoming like the rave, having George Harrison carry the Vanilla Fudge album around with him to parties, and then starting the big drum fad, and, and open, taking Led Zeppelin on their first tour, meeting the guys, and when they were green, nobody knew who they were. Getting John Bonham hooked up with Ludwig, telling Robert Plant to move home, to move around on the stage more, you know, all this crazy stuff, you know. <laughs> and then, then going to re-meeting Hendrix when he was Hendrix, me and the Fudge, and you know, being on tour with him and, and the Cream, and you know, just going to all that, being on the Ed Sullivan show twice, you know, then playing with Rod Stewart and hanging out with guys like Tony Curtis, Gregory Peck, Fred Astaire, you know, it's just crazy, you know, and then playing with Ozzy and Ted and. You know, it just goes through all the all the things, and and then but I try and keep it going from that into today. You know, like I'm going right. to write a piece. I mean, we just did the Jimmy Fallon show. You know who he is? Yep, I know who Jimmy Fallon. Okay, is. Okay, we just played on the Jimmy Fallon show with Vanilla Fudge. So you know, I told Greg it'd be cool to maybe write something. You know, a couple of paragraphs about that, and maybe put it in the beginning of the book somewhere. You know. And because I try and do today and now and then, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, yeah. Like when I was talking about an Aussie tour, I was on tour with Pat Travis in 2004 in Europe as we were going through Lithuania and the Russian borders and how, you know, when I'm talking, I'm, I'm writing the story and then I go, oh, hold on a minute. Somebody's coming up on the, on the bus. It's a Lithuanian, um, police, you know, border police. And they just said, uh, are you the drummer? And they looked at me, you know? And then they search up uh, our uh, bus for two hours. Then we drive a half a mile down the road. We go into the, the next border, which was Russia, and they search us for two hours. You know, so I'm discussing wow. that in the, uh, you know, in the actual book as I'm talking through, you know, an Aussie story. You know, because this is what. So I try and include what's happening now and then. It just, you know, tells a. It's a really. Really good story. And then I got the sex fucking orgies and the much up story and all of, you know, I got everything in there. I got, I got, you know, the ride we had in Hanover, Germany with, G, with BBA, with Jeff Beck. And then the, me, Jeff and Tim went to uh, a live section in, in Hanover. I mean, Hamburg. And, and we pulled the chicks and there was all this crazy shit that went on with that. And, you know, a couple of crazy orgies we have with Jeff Beck and, yeah, I mean, it was, it was crazy. You know, crazy stories with Rod, you know, and, and having uh, contests on who could screw the most chicks, you know, on, on the Rod Stewart tour. And, you know, and what it was like having the number one record in, in like, 15 countries that I co-wrote with Rod and played on it. And, you know, it's just really, you know, really a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of stuff, so... It sounds like it's going to be a, a great book. Yeah. I mean, and I, got, I, I got two titles. I got two titles. Check this out. The International Rock Guide to Hotel Wrecking is one. Well, 40 Years of Cool. Which which do you like better? You really can't go wrong with either. Um... I've been I've been using International Rock Guide to Hotel Wrecking for, for year, all these years of writing it. We have it in the book, you know, a few times. But this new, my manager said, you know, he liked the, the 40 Years of Cool with a subtitle of that, you know. Uh, my girlfriend, who's a radio talk show, says, ah, I think 42, 40 is cool is sort of too, um, you know, it just sounds a little conceited. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, I mean, it, it could be look, yeah, it could get that type of reaction, yeah, yeah. but, you know, at the same time, the, the other title is very unique yeah. and, 
I think you'd also draw in a certain crowd from that as well that, you know, you, you're obviously going to get your hardcore fans, so I'll check this yeah, out. Right, right. But I think that title almost transcends a lot of things and will get yeah. uh, other people interested as well. Yeah, that's, what I, that's why I've always used that when, you know, I was, I was with Rod Stewart Group when I came up with that title, you know, and I said, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to call it this. You know? <laughs> and um, so, okay, cool. I cut you off. I don't know what you were saying. So. No, 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 no problem at all. I really look forward to reading the book. And like I said, you know, I've been catching up on all these different books that have come out the last few years. And, you know, you, you read some and, and they're really good. And you read others that, you know, absolutely suck. And yeah. and the people are just full Wh of Which them, ones so. have you read? Which ones have you read? Like? Have you read the Keith Richards book? Um, I haven't read the Keith Richards one. I recently read the Ozzy book, the Mustaine book, the Slash book, Lemmy's book. Yeah. Um, right. Now, the Ozzy book, I, I read some of that. It seemed a bit boring. Yeah. And, yeah. How'd you like it? I mean, it's, it's all right, but they, I mean, you know, there are certain things that just make you scratch your head, you know, that just seem yeah. almost too good to be true and I mean you you obviously know this from being You mean sensationalism? You mean sensationalism? Yeah, yeah. Uh, plenty of sensation yeah, like like the Motley like the Motley Crew book. Yeah, well the Motley Crew book when they start talking about the wives and girlfriends towards the end is just a snooze fest. So as 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 cool as uh Yeah, but I mean all of this, there's a lot of stuff in there that just it's just sensationalism. I yeah. mean you know, like you know, when they're saying Ozzy snorted the ants, I don't really believe that. Right. I don't believe that. <laughs> and, you know, because I was on a lot of that tour, and I don't remember any of that, you know. <laughs> but, but, you know, there's sensationalism, you know. I mean, I'm, what I'm, I'm trying to be honest with this book, you know. Right. Real, real and honest, you know. I was a Slash book. I didn't read his book. You know, it's... It's okay, but he, he has some outlandish statements, like saying that Guns N' Roses is the biggest group of all time and that no one has ever outsold them. And I'm thinking, uh, have you ever heard of the Rolling Stones by any chance? Uh, who probably sold oh, Have you ever heard of Michael Jackson? Y yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so... Have uh, you ever heard of Elton John? $270 million, $270 million records. You know, Rod Stewart. Uh, I mean, come on, you know. Uh, yeah, I could see that. But anyway, I like Splash. He's a nice guy. Yeah. But, you know, I started reading some of the book, and uh, some of them I can't get through. Like this, Keith Richards' book has 100 pages about his childhood. Huh. You know? I mean, come on, dude. You know, two or three, four pages about your childhood. Then, you know, nobody wants to read about your fucking childhood that long. <laughs> you know? You, you get a vibe on your childhood, and then move on. You know? Yeah. After like 30, 40 pages, I said, man, when does this childhood end? <laughs> and I had to go up to to uh, like over 100 pages and, and, and starts talking about you know, getting into music. But even that's real slow. Hmm. His, his book is 790 pages long. I could see why. No shit. He wrote it himself. <laughs> yeah, he wrote it himself. And, and it's just, it just, now I got the book, I'm carrying the book with me and between, you know, reading my book over for Greg and going through shit. Yeah. yeah I, I don't, that's like one of those books that you don't want to read. You don't want to get back to reading. Yeah. I, you know, like, you know, like I read, like I have another book called, a uh, Howard Hughes book called Empire. I read it 25 years ago, mm -hmm. but, you know, I'm looking forward to reading it again. 
you know, right. when I'm done with, with this stuff. But, but the Keith Richards book, I just, you know, there were some interesting things. Like he went out with Ronnie Spector and stuff like that. I guess that was cool. Right. You know, some stuff like that. But maybe it's just starting. I don't know. So. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and Greg's stuff tends to be I'm trying to make my, I'm trying to make, uh, yeah, I'm trying to make my book like, you know, when the chapter starts, it just starts with an outlandish statement of, you know, <laughs> of something, you know, like, like my book opens up, I'm running from the cops, you know? Right. You know, and uh, each chapter I try and start it. So it's like, so then we went to, you know, and after that, you know, we did the, I always try and start it with, uh, you know, like uh, something so it doesn't really, you don't really know where it's going. Yeah. You know, like, because I read a lot of books. I read a lot of sci-fi, a lot of novels and stuff. And, and you know, sometimes they start paragraphs and you go, what the hell does this have to do with the story, you know? <laughs> It keeps your interest. Yeah. You know? So I try and do that. But yeah, but Greg's doing a good job, and um, hopefully it'll come out, and maybe I'll be lucky and I'll make a movie out of it. Oh, cool. Have you already talked to people about doing the movie, or that's just an afterthought no, at the moment? No. No, it's one one thing at a time. Okay. First, you got to get the book done. I mean, I've had guys talk to me some indie movie guys going, yeah, we should do a movie of your life. But, you know, I mean, I'm, I always like to do things big. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if it's going to be, um, you know, try and get a real good book deal, go around, promote it, and get sell, sell a shitload of books, and then hopefully somebody will come up and go, you know what, this will make a great movie. Right. Makes sense. So, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, whatever. If it does, it does. If it don't, hey, it's a lot. You know, I've had a good life. I had a good time. I'm still having a good time. Yeah. And uh, life is good. <laughs> cool. Very cool. You've played with a lot of people over the years. Is there anyone that you regretted not being able to play with? Um, uh, yeah, I wish that at the time when John Bonham passed away and, you know, Led Zeppelin quit. But I, it would have been nice if they... If they continued and they asked me to join them because the rumor was they were going to ask me to join them. I would have uh, liked that. I would really like playing with Zeppelin. <clears throat> but other than that, you know, I mean, uh, I don't really sit around and think, oh, man, I wish I would have played with him. You know, I wish I would have played with him. Uh, I wish I would have played with Michael Jackson. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. He was, a, a, he was an amazing performer. I, mean, I would have liked to play with Michael Jackson, but, you know. I played with the white. I played with the white Michael Jackson, Rod Stewart. <laughs> uh, he was an amazing performer when I played with him. So, um, yeah, I pretty much played with most people I wanted to play with. Right. Cool. As far as other drummers, are there any drummers that you've seen out there throughout your years that you were surprised that they didn't get the notoriety that you felt they should have received? Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, no, nah, I mean, I can't really think of any offhand because if they, most of the drummers I know that are real good and have received the notoriety in the drum business, you know what I mean? Right, that's true. They, maybe they didn't make in the huge monster, you know, arenas or stadiums, but they made it in the drum business where they became a legendary name, you know, like. Uh, Dennis Chambers was a big drum guy, and then he went and played with Santana, mm -hmm. you know, which made him even bigger, you know. So there's, there's guys like that, you know. Uh, 
Virgil Donati, you know, was a tremendous drummer. Never really was in a big rock group. The closest thing he got was playing with uh, Neil Sean in the band, you know. Right. But he's, you know, but he's a great name in the in the drum world, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so I didn't really know. I mean, I, I could I could think of guys who made it real big that <laughs> you should know. <laughs> I won't mention any names on that one. <laughs> Yeah, I was uh, I was thinking of that question as well when I wrote this one, but I said I don't want to step on anyone's toes here. So, yeah, I mean, I would think you know Ringo Starr is probably an underrated drummer uh, as far as because he's he was so innovating and what he's done. People love him as if everyone knows him as a drummer, and but nobody knows him as a, you know. A lot of people don't know him as an, an innovator, like he was so innovating in a lot of things in recording. Right. You know, with the, you know, so maybe maybe he would be the one. Okay. And uh, as far as the clinics are concerned, actually, uh, clinics and charities and, and things of that nature, you're one of the first person or one of the first musicians, I should say, that's actually gone out there done various clinics, obviously clinics over the years, and given your time yeah. to a lot of uh, charities. Why did you decide to get involved in all of this? Well, the Love Your Drum Company is the ones that pushed me to do the clinics. And when I actually wrote a drum book, uh, because I saw a book in in Sam Ash Music Stores, uh, Learn to Play Rock Drums, and it was a horrible book. I said, I'm going to write a book. So when I did write the book, and we got the deal to get it out. Uh, Ludwig said, now you got a book, you should do clinics, because that's how you sell your book. So I did the first clinic. Uh, I was actually the first rock musician to, to do a clinic. Right. You know, drummer or guitarist, singer, anybody. I was the first one. I didn't realize that until a couple of years ago. Some a journalist mentioned that to me. Hmm. And uh, then I said, you know what, this is fun. This is good. And I, it was like payback to the community. And then, you know, through Rod Stewart, we started doing stuff for um, UNICEF, UNICEF and, and then I started uh, donating money from clinics to UNICEF. I, I, I guess it was like a couple of bucks a head, and I, all the clinics I did. Like, I remember I did a clinic tour of Europe. I had 10,000 people. We donated like 20 grand to UNICEF for that one tour. So over a period of a year, I think I did about, uh, uh, I think it was forty or fifty thousand dollars. I gave them in one, one, a couple of years of, of donating, and uh, they gave me some awards. And and then you know, then I started doing, you know, always being involved in you know charity things. Little Kids Rock is the latest one I've been working with, and you know, it just it feels makes me feel good that I'm giving back to to under underprivileged people and children and and all that, you know, because I've had a, you know a good career and. And a good life, and you know, I don't want to you know, spread that around a little bit. But as far as the clinics go, I'm a believer in passing down the tradition. You know, gotcha. Excellent. I mean, there's plenty of people that you know would probably be in your position and be as known as as you are in the drumming world, and you know, playing with all the people that you've played, and most certainly uh, would have uh, passed it up. As as you mentioned, uh, Keith Richards before. I think the Stones are very famous in saying that. Uh, they don't play for free, so. Yeah, right, exactly. So, you know, I mean, I play for free plenty of time. I do a lot of charity work and, you know, tributes and blah, blah, blah. We just did this John Bonham tribute that I couldn't play, so I had rotator cuff surgery. <coughs> but I went up and told stories about the old days, you know. Right. 
and uh, it was great. It was really good. So, yeah, so, uh, you know, I like doing it. I think it's a good way to get stuff um, back to the uh, to the audience and back to the people, you know. Okay. To give back, you know. Right. I got you. And uh, the last question, uh, has anyone ever caught you off guard by saying that they were influenced by you? Yeah, definitely. Like uh, one time, I, I'm, uh, Greg Bissonnet introduced me to Dave, Dave Weckl. He was a really great, famous drummer. Right. And he said, I want to thank you for Realistic Rock. I said, why? He said, I went through it. I got Dave Weckl went through it? Yeah. <laughs> that, was a, that was one. Another one was Andrew Dice Clay. When I met him, he went through it also. Okay, yeah, so you're there? Yeah. Yeah, so the, the other one was Andrew Dice Clay. When I met him out on the street, he came over and he said, hey, I want to thank you for that book you did. Uh, what is it? Uh, I said, Realistic Rock. He says, yeah. I said, why? He goes, I went through it. I go, you went through my book? <laughs> he said, yeah. He played drums. So that blew me away, you know. So, you know, so those, I guess those two were the most, you know. Every, and then I get, you know, I get people from, like, all the time that went through my book or, you know, so that was their influence. You know, like the Google Dolls drum. I met him in Mexico at the airport. <laughs> and he came to me and said, yeah, man, I went through your book. I said, wow, that's interesting. Hi, this come out of peace. And you're listening to Mars Attack. Yow!
a little black knight there, and you're wondering, how does this all fit into the mix? Well, there's a Spanish artist by the name of Javier Vargas. Javier Vargas is a very famous blues guitarist over here in Spain. And I have a very good friend that is a diehard Javier Vargas fan. The next episode of the Mars Attacks podcast will have Paul Shortino, who also sung on the King Cobra album. Paul Shortino brought up the fact that Carmine, Tim Bogart, and Javier Vargas had put an album together of nothing but covers. And it's a pretty cool album. Black Knight, the Deep Purple classic that we just heard, comes off of this specific album. It isn't released in the States. It's come out over here on Roadrunner, who is now part of Warner Brothers. But, uh, yeah, I thought it would be cool to add this in there since it's almost... You know, something that you're not going to be able to pick up unless it's on import. And who knows if this will ever come out in the States. But, uh, yeah, the next episode will be with Paul Shortino. Great, great episode with him. And, you know, aside from having my son, I was sort of waiting for this to come out as well. To uh, to be able to bring some of the tracks off of it uh, to you. Again, if there's anything that I can do to help promote bands that I really enjoy or artists that I've dug over the years, you know, I'm more than happy to do so. And if they're great guests on top of that, which Carmine and and Paul Shortino have been, well, you know, that's even more of a reason for me to go out of my way to help promote their stuff. So I want to thank Carmine for coming on the show. want to thank Dustin from over at Frontiers for helping set everything up. And um, and that's pretty much it. Oh, I also want to thank Richard from Frontiers over here in Spain as well, since he did help set up uh, the Paul Shortino interview, or or vice versa. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's been a while, and uh, and and I don't remember off the top of my head. Anyway, thanks to both of those guys, and thanks to Frontiers for you know flying the flag of 80s hard rock and metal. You know, I know that there are a lot of newer people that aren't into some of this stuff, a lot of younger, you know, people. But there are some, you know, some of us older people that are in our late 30s, you know, people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and so on that are still into a lot of this stuff. So we like to mix stuff up. And uh, for those of you uh, that are much younger and don't like this sort of stuff, you know, we're going to have, for example, Mark Hunter of Chimera, Lee from Pop Evil, uh, Dave Reffitt, and um, uh, Michael Orlando from Adrenaline Mob coming up shortly as well. So we like to mix things up here. You know, in my opinion, hard rock and metal aren't one-dimensional, and if you... if you know what I do with these shows. Uh, if you've checked out the classic albums column, you'll know, uh, you know that we like to cover all different areas or all types of hard rock and metal. And uh, once again, if you're an artist and you're listening to the podcast and want to contribute, send your comments or contact us at input at marsattacksradio.com. We'd be more than happy to have you on the show uh, to either comment about the albums that have been, you know, selected for the list or just to send your email written comments as well. And uh, that's pretty much it. We're going to leave you with one last track from King Cobra. This is the track, Top of the World. 
Thanks again for listening, and see you next time, right here on the Mars Attacks podcast. (laughs) 